0: wrong, uh, they may see the good deeds that we do and may it result in the glory to God when he ultimately comes and returns. I would suggest to you that those two verses really are the transitional verses into this next section uh, of Peter's letter. It begins at chapter 2 and verse 13 and continues on through chapter 3 and verse 12. Where the focus and the emphasis that Peter has now in this letter is on the t- subject of being submissive in life, or submission in life. The first section is salvation in Christ. Now he's dealing with submission in life. And what he means by this is that the believer is to live uh, in such a manner, such a way that your lifestyle and mine as Christ followers will express and model honorable conduct or excellent behavior before a watching and unbelieving world. When we do that, it brings glory to God. We're glorifying God by living uh, an honorable life. It also advertises the gospel. It makes the gospel come alive and real when people can see that through Jesus Christ, your life and mine is different and has been transformed and has a higher purpose than just living from day to day. And it also becomes uh, real life proof that Jesus Christ is real uh, and is the Son of God. And in fact... It provides proof so that it can refute accusations that are levied at uh, the Christians. As we saw in verse 12, they accuse you of doing wrong. Uh, A godly life, a life that pleases God, a life that has with it honorable conduct is the best uh, refute to accusations uh, against the Christian and the follower of Jesus. So Peter here now in this second section is going to address three areas or three particular spheres where the Christians uh, were maligned. And he's going to answer that. See, Christians were accused in Peter's day of inciting insurrection against the government. The government of that time was Rome. And because Christians pledged their full and complete Allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as Sovereign and King. They were accused of being uh, disloyal to the Roman powers that be. A second way in which Peter uh, is addressing uh, the, these uh, accusations is that the Christian was charged uh, that their teachings particularly the teachings of Jesus, caused rebellion among slaves. Uh, that might seem odd to us, uh, considering that we recognize slavery as such an awful thing and glad that it, it doesn't exist, but of that day, that was part of the social order. And they were being charged with the fact that the teachings of Jesus and the gospel is, is creating rebellion That that slaves are rebelling against their their masters and rebelling in their social order. And so it was disrupting things as a culture. Surprisingly, uh, the Christians were also uh, alleged to be teaching things, because they were followers of Christ, that were disrupting uh, and destroying the marriage relationship. Causing uh, the breakup of families. In light of all of these accusations that were levied against them, and, and certainly in our day we're not immune from being accused of so many things that are untrue, how will a believer respond to these charges? Well, let me suggest to you that First Peter two, thirteen through chapter 3 and verse 12, Peter will call the believer to a lifestyle uh, of submission. This submission, as we saw last time, is a, a willing uh, and voluntary act where you and I put ourselves under the authority or leadership of another. Kind of interesting that uh, uh, the scripture would bear this out, that uh, my uh, behavior, even my actions and my attitudes uh, become a a, a testimony uh, or a living picture of the gospel uh, and the good news. I have here in my notes, the gospel does not create a bunch of rebels. Listen to some teaching, you would think that it's the opposite. But my behavior and my actions and my attitudes not only become a testimony of the gospel, But they also are a reflection of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, We're going to see in chapter 2 verses 21 through 25 how Christ himself was submitted to the Father that ultimately resulted in our salvation. It's kind of interesting that that before we get into our text there's an illustration of this that we see from the uh, life of the Apostle Paul. i would have you uh, turn please to Acts for a moment. With me, Acts chapter 24, and, and you will recall that on more than one occasion the Apostle Paul was a- accused of, of all sorts of insurrection and causing trouble and riots and everything else every place he went. Uh, really it was the proclamation of the gospel that, that stirred people up and, and caused them to behave as they did. And in Acts chapter 24, we're not going to read, it's quite an extended passage, but uh, let me give you a little summary that Paul was uh, on on trial here before Felix, who was a Roman governor, uh, and uh, Tertullius was the one that was representing the Jews and bringing the case against Paul. And he says here in verse 5 regarding Paul, We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. Verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing uh, uh, against him. Verse 9, the Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that all these things were true. Did you catch how many times the, the prosecuting attorney, so to speak, mentioned... It's, it's true. You're, you're going to see the facts are going to bear this out. But notice the way Paul responds, verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, and he, he gives him a, a greeting. I know for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense uh, before you. And, and I just think it's interesting to note that Paul was very respectful He didn't shout back. He didn't start to try to defend himself. He was respectful in this context, and he always was. Verse 11, you can notice Paul's words, easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 12, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. And, and then he goes on to, uh, to then segue into sharing what he was actually doing and what he stands for in terms of his relationship uh, to Jesus Christ. The, the, point, the reason why I bring that up is because Paul was brought up against charges for being a troublemaker, for causing problems and riots and, and disrupting the way of life. And Paul says, look at the facts. Look at my life. Look at even the testimony of these things. If you investigate them, you will find out that what charges they are bringing against me, in fact, are not true and can't be proven. Now, this continued on because Paul was then left in uh, uh, in confinement and in prison for two more years. And then the charges were brought up again when a new governor appeared by the name of Festus. And Festus heard his case. And he felt it was kind of pointless. He didn't understand what was going on and why there was such a, such a, 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 a desire to see this man indicted in this way. And so Paul then appears before not only Felix, uh, Festus, but he appears before uh, King Agrippa. And each of these cases Paul uses as an opportunity and a platform for him to share his testimony concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel. And notice that after they go through this whole thing in chapter 26 of him standing before King Agrippa and Festus, notice that at the end of all this, verse 30, it says, the king arose and with him the governor and Bernice and were, and were sitting with them, they left the room, and while they were talking to one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. See, see when he was brought before the, the, the officials and was tried, the, the evidence proved that Paul was innocent in these things. But yet, because of the system at that time, Paul had made an appeal to Caesar... And when you appealed to hear your case before Caesar, that was then set. That's the next uh, event on the docket, so to speak. You appear before Caesar to give your testimony. And, and by, by the way, on the side note, Paul's desire was to go to Rome and to preach the gospel there. And you know the vehicle by which God brought him there was trials. <laughs> Not not trials in terms of physical suffering, though there was some of that, but actually being in the courtroom. And ultimately he was brought to Rome and had his day uh, in court. What I want you to see here at the outset was that even by the Apostle Paul's uh, activity and his life, and you could read these la- latter chapters of the book of Acts and you see that he was always doing his best to work within the bounds of the law's but also to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by doing that, he lived in submission to God and to his word, but he also lived in submission to the authorities that were above him. So uh, just at the outset, uh, let me ask this question of myself and of all of us here really this morning. What is my life communicating uh, about Jesus and the gospel. Is my life commendable? <laughs> or is it contemptible? Someone has said, uh, if you were and I were to be put on trial for being Christians, would there be enough evidence uh, to convict us? So notice that uh, Peter says here, One of the ways that we as believing people uh, give testimony to the gospel uh, is by a submission in life. And we've already seen in verse 13 of 1 Peter 2, if you turn back there, 1 Peter 2, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. This idea of being uh, submitted to means to be subject to Uh, And uh, he's going to uh, be very specific now in these verses as to who we are to be submitted to. His focus in these verses that we were looking at are on the position that the believer has in relationship to the government or the authorities. Because notice what he says here in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every Authority instituted among men. Whether to the king, some translations have here, the emperor, and it's better understood that. Did you know that at the time that Peter wrote this, who the emperor was? Nero. Nero the neurotic. The the man who, it is alleged, set Rome on fire and then blamed the Christians for that. Uh, that was the, the emperor that was, that was reigning at the moment. Uh, and while we don't have an emperor in this country, we do have a president. A- and in some countries there is a premier. Sometimes there is a prime minister who is, the, who is considered to be, uh, as the next phrase says, the supreme authority, the one who, 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 who sits at the top of the authority structure. Now, in our uh, uh, type of government, of course, we have a president and we have a Congress and we have other leaders that it's a shared power. It's not vested in just one person. But notice this. Peter says here, you are to be submitted to the king, to the emperor, as the supreme authority. And what he's saying here is the supreme authority on earth, the ruler, the one as we saw last week, in our definition, is vested with constituted authority. Meaning having authority bestowed. Not inherent in himself, but bestowed. And who is it bestowed by? God. Because we're going to see here in a moment that God is the one that has instituted governments uh, that exist within our present world. And notice this. He says, to the king or to the governors who are sent by him. So it's not just one person, but sometimes there's many authorities that that are part of a a governmental uh, structure. They are his representatives who also help assist to govern and to rule. We we could extend that out and think of it in our terms that not only do we have a a federal government in our country, we also have state government, Uh, we have regional and local authorities that exist. And so, uh, I would suggest to you that by extension, Peter is using this example, but it says to you and me that the believer is to be in subjection or submitted to uh, the the governmental uh, uh, authorities and structures that are in place. Even as he says at the beginning of verse 13, every authority instituted among men. Now, I I, I thought of this uh, silly illustration, but... I, I hope it uh, makes my point. Suppose you're pulled over for speeding. Have any of you been pulled over for speeding? You don't have to answer that. I have. <laughs> More than once. So, But if when the officer came to my window and asked for my license and registration and, and told me that I was pulled over for going beyond the speed limit, the posted speed limit, I've broken the law... I said to him, Well, I'm a diplomat of heaven, so your laws don't apply to me. Do you think that that would get very far? No, it wouldn't. Notice here that Peter says the Christians are to be submitted to every authority instituted among men. And you might ask yourself the question, Why? Why? Well, the king, the emperor, the president, the premier, the prime minister, uh, the, the, the governor, the, the authorities, the powers that be, really are instituted by God and are sent by the, the, the structure that's there. Notice those. Notice this, to punish those who do wrong, who, who are lawbreakers. What type of world would this be if we didn't have laws and enforce them? It would be chaos. It would be anarchy. It would be every man and woman and person for themselves. It would be destructive. And you see God has ordained in His ordering of this world governmental structures to exist for a purpose and for a cause. Part of that is to punish evildoers. But also, government is there as well, and leaders are there, to commend those who do good. I'm afraid that somehow, though, in our present world, in some instances, those things have gotten mixed up. And I think those who maybe do wrong are the ones that are applauded, and those who do good are, are vilified. But that's, that's another thing for us to consider at another time. So the, the truth is that when you and I, if we are under the, the country and the authority of our government and we break the law, we will suffer the penalty for that. Which is kind of interesting because if, if, if I break the law, I, I was speeding and I was guilty and paid over a hundred dollar fine. The, the price had to be paid. That was the consequence. Isn't that interesting that that becomes, if you would, in and of itself, a gospel lesson and truth? That when you break the law, there's a consequence and a payment that must be made? And, and let me just say this, that, that governments, regardless or their form or expressions, are instituted and ordered by God who is sovereign, who is the ultimate authority, who has inherent authority over all. Not just over one people, or over the church, or over one individual, but over all, he is the supreme and sovereign of the universe. You say, uh, is there any scripture that would back this up? Well, let me have you turn, please, to Romans chapter 13. Because I think the Apostle Paul, I don't think, I know, the, uh, the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle Peter were in agreement at this point. Because notice what he, Paul says here in Romans 13. To believers. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Do you think that uh, he is trying to make a point here that authorities that exist are God's ordaining? And notice what he says here, verse 2. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. There will be a In essence, a price to pay. There will be a consequence. There will be a penalty. Notice this, verse 3. This is God's intended purpose for authorities and government. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Notice verse 4. For he is God's servant to do you good. And I just want to have you stop there for a moment because this may not come out uh, uh, fully in our English text. But did you notice that in verse 4, he says that he or it, the government, the authority, is God's servant? And the interesting thing about that is the word that Paul used there is the word diakonoi, from which we get the word deacon. He didn't say that they're just a servant of any kind. They're a particular servant doing God's purpose and will and bidding. So verse 4 continues, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. It indicates that the government has the the right to bring discipline and ultimately punishment uh, for lawbreakers and for those who do evil. And he again says, he is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, for the believer, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possibility of punishment, but also because of conscience sake. Conscience sake being this, that I want to please God who has commanded me to to have a, a submissive life to those who are in authority over me. And he shows some examples here at verse 6. This is why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Isn't it kind of interesting that, that the terminology we use in relationship to the government, that, that those who serve in those roles are called public servants? Unfortunately, that's not always the case. It sometimes becomes self-serving. But notice this, regardless of that, Paul isn't addressing that. He says, what you're to do, verse 7, is give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. See, uh, God is saying to you and me as Christ followers that, that we should be, if you would, good citizens. We are, we are indeed citizens of two countries, by the way. <laughs> uh, we're citizens of heaven, according to Philippians uh, chapter 2. That's our true citizenship in heaven. But also, we're part of this country in which we live. We're citizens. Uh, and when I obey the law... I choose to do so because I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And so therefore I pay taxes, I give honor, I show respect, I do what is expected in the uh, expectations of the government uh, in which I live. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in the first three verses, one of the other things that believers do in relationship to the government is that they are to pray for those in authority over us. Do you pray regularly for those who are in authority? For their salvation? For God to give them the wisdom to govern rightly and justly? Uh, here, here's an interesting uh, thing. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, as you know, were uh, brought under God's discipline and sent away to Babylon. They were still his chosen people. They, they were living in Babylon. They were hoping for a quick return back to the promised land and to resume life as usual. But God said, no, you're going to be there for a while. For 70 years, God had said so that the land can have its Sabbath rests. They had been violating God's law. But interestingly, they were were anxious. They wanted to get back. And and God, through his prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, uh, had him write a letter to these, these Jews in exile. And it's kind of interesting because what God tells them to do is to Settle down in Babylon if you would be good citizens and live. And notice what he says in this this letter to them. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now notice this. Build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce marry and have sons and daughters find wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage so that you too may have sons and daughters increase in number do not decrease in other words live uh, just basic life But we're in Babylon. We're under a a godless leadership. Well, live life the way I call you to. And notice this. He continues, verse 7, And also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Not just mind your own business, which is part of it, yes. Yes. But also be active in seeking the peace and prosperity of the city. Notice he continues on, verse 7. Pray to the Lord for it. Why? Here's some motivation. If it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. And he warns them not to listen to the false prophets. Don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams. They encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. The the false prophets were telling them, this Babylonian exile is just going to be really brief. Soon you're going to be back in the land and life will return to normal as you know it. Isn't it interesting, again, that Peter says of believing people in the context of his first letter that we are strangers and exiles in this present world. We're not really at our true home. But notice, live life, seek the prosperity of the city, and pray for it. Because when, when things go well for the city as a whole, they are blessed, but so are you. And I, I specifically asked here this morning for uh, an example of that. And we do have one even in our own midst. Uh, I asked uh, both Karen and Clay to uh, write down for me a few thoughts regarding their involvement with their community neighborhood watch. Because I think that it illustrates how you and I can, can live in, a, in this present world and have a positive influence and impact for the gospel's sake, even beyond just our own family or our own workplace to even the community at large. Uh, And so I'm just going to highlight a few of these things. Uh, They both wrote the same thing, and so I'm going to pull some thoughts out of both uh, brief uh, words here. They say that one morning they heard, uh, woke up to gunshots. Uh, On top of all the other uh, loud things that were going on in their neighborhood. So they started to pray about what we could do and what we should do. Um, In the providence of God, uh, Clay ended up having knee surgery. And as part of the recovery of that, he needed to walk. So they started to walk their neighborhood. And as they did that, they prayed and they started to meet many of their neighbors. They prayed as they walked. They got the idea of the possibility of maybe uh, inviting the neighbors into the possibility of a community watch. And so they put out flyers. uh, They arranged the first meeting. And uh, it was focused on, uh, first of all, uh, crime prevention. What can we do? Our, our neighborhood is, is, is dying and it's, 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 it's involved with all sorts of things. Uh, I think that one of the comments that was made was that even, even drugs had become a problem that was very uh, prevalent. Uh, so they were focused primarily on crime prevention and then as time went on they, they started to not only address that but started helping their neighbors and the comment is wrote because when you get to know your neighbors the neighborhood will become safer and stronger and uh, the name of their watch had become neighbors helping neighbors And, and and by god's grace and god's blessing God has used the two of them and this neighborhood watch to have a positive influence and impact on their local neighborhood. So much so, and we've seen this, that, that they have been interviewed on the local news. And, and Clay has related to me on occasion that he's had opportunity to meet with many department heads of the city. In fact, he even related to me this week that I think there's something coming up where there's some state officials that are coming in that are going to have some conversations with the neighborhood watch. And it all came out of the desire to do something positive for the sake of the community and for the neighborhood in which we live. So the principle of, of being good citizens and living under the powers that be is, is woven throughout the, both the Old and the New Testament. We can see that. But you might ask yourself the question, what if a government or a ruler is tyrannical or godless? Then what do we do? Is the Christian obligated by God to be in subjection to such Well, let me share a few thoughts uh, along this line as we bring this to a close. Please note with me that both rulers and governments have limited authority. There's only certain things that government is really, by God at least, commended and appointed to do. Secondly, God alone is to be given absolute and complete submission. Let me say that again. God alone is to be given complete and absolute submission. So this brings up, three, that Christians in certain situations, let me underscore certain situations, may be required to disobey a government. Now hear me in this. When? When the believer is asked to do something which is clearly violates the word of God. When it clearly violates the word of God. You see a couple of examples of this in both the Old and New Testament. Remember, you'll recall in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh issued an edict that all male Hebrew children be cast into the river. In other words, aborted. They didn't obey that because that would have violated God's law. And the midwives who were part of that whole situation, the Bible tells us that they were commended by God and blessed in that context. Another example comes much later in Israel's history with three men by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you you all know the story. You either bow or you burn. To bow meant that you are worshiping Nebuchadnezzar as supreme and as God. And these three Hebrew men said, there's only one true and living God. And and in fact, we know He could rescue us and deliver us from your hand, O Nebuchadnezzar. And go back and read that account. They're respectful in their response but they're bold and they're they're determined to serve God. But even if He doesn't rescue us, know this, we will not bow. So the state comes along and says, we're supreme. Whatever you teach has to come under our purview and guidance. No. No. That's overstepping the authority for which God has ordained a government and an authority. Well, let me show you an example of this. This comes out of the book of Acts. You no doubt are familiar with this. But look with me if you would at Acts uh, chapter 4 with me briefly. Acts chapter 4. You recall that uh, Peter and John were at the temple. In the context, chapter three, there was a man who was uh, uh, a beggar, who was lame. He was healed. He started to preach Jesus. The officials came and arrested uh, John and Peter. Uh, Peter and John, uh, and uh, uh, they 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 told them, verse 17, to stop. To stop this from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to no longer speak to anyone in this name, meaning the name of Jesus. So they called them again and commanded commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. If that edict came out today, that law came out today, are we to abide by it? Well Peter and John replied, isn't it interesting that Peter who wrote this letter is the one that had this encounter, Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know, The Lord had so transformed their lives and was so much a part of their lives. It's like, we can't help it. We have to speak about Jesus. Now the church is at a place, I think, sometimes where we have to prod people to speak about Jesus who are believers. But notice this, that Peter and John in this context say, well, you make a decision whether this is right or wrong. But later on, chapter 5 and verse 27, they're arrested again. They're brought up again before these same officials. And notice what Peter says, verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear now before the Sanhedrin, the official leadership of Israel, to be questioned by the high priest. Verse 28 says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, and you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. (laughs) Did you notice that? He says, you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. (laughs) You didn't just do it among a few group of people. This is spreading, and you just keep spreading this message concerning this Nazarene Jesus. And you're implicating us because we're the ones that, that denied him. Look at verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. There you have it. There are times where the believer may be called upon to be disobedient to the powers that be because it violates the very commands that God has given us and violates the very word of God, the word of God which is uh, supreme. Here's a situation in which the the government or the powers that be were overstepping uh, their bounds. So notice what Peter says here. We're to be in submission, but he also says here, notice verse uh, 16, live as free men. You know, Christ has set us free from the bondage and the power of sin in our lives. And in one sense, you are free. However, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. I think there's two things that Peter is saying to the believer in this. He's saying, don't live a life of secret sin, number one. Or number two, to outwardly obey the powers that be, but really inwardly and secretly you're planning its overthrow. And I hesitate to say this, but I feel that maybe we just need to be reminded of this. There's a danger of aligning Christianity too closely with any political party or platform so that the gospel message then becomes discredited. Am am I suggesting that we not participate in the political process? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, be careful of how you use your, if you would, endorsement as a Christian when it comes to political things. Because sometimes I think the gospel message, which is our primary goal to get the gospel out, the good news out, gets clouded in the issues that we face in this present world. I was saddened when a very prominent magazine had On its front cover, some things from our last election, and it showed a Christian standing there with a huge Bible and one candidate's flag flying in the background. How is that promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ that men and women are lost and need a Savior by virtue of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Just be careful. Just be careful. And in fact, not only are we to to live lives as free men and not to do so for a cover-up for evil, but we're to live as servants of God. He says, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. We are to show dignity to fellow human beings. They are ones for whom Christ died. Do you ever think about that when you're out in public? I do quite frequently. I'm out in the middle of a crowd. I don't like crowds, but when I'm out, I think to myself, Christ knows every one of these people and he died for them. I wonder how many of them know him. Show proper respect to everyone. So one of the ways that we show respect is by not responding in kind. The world is angry. The world wants to get in your face. The world wants to call names. The world wants to to use you know, uh, sort of slurs and things like that. As a follower of Christ, don't do that. Don't respond in kind. Peter also says here, love the brotherhood. Love the family of believers. You know that one of the criticisms of the church those people can't even get along with one another. You want me to join that? What an indictment that is, if that's true of any local congregation of believers that we can't get along. And I don't mean in a natural sense like the Rodney King who said, let's just get all along. I'm talking about what Jesus said, the, the world will know that you're Christians by your love for one another. And he says here, fear God. And a fear of God means that, that you reverence God, you have a respect for God. There's certain things that you and I as believers just will not do or participate in because we love God. We fear Him. We just don't do it. Oh, don't you want to be relatable and be a part of it? No. We're to be distinct. We're not only to stand fast in the grace of God, as Peter says at the end of this letter, but we're to stand out to reflect Christ and what it means to be his follower. And lastly, he says, honor the king. You may not like the one who occupies the office. You may not agree with anything. But you are obligated to respect that office and the one who holds it And maybe some of the things that we should do is rein in some of our comments. Some of our caricatures. Some of our humor that we use. Which is borderline, I think, sometimes blasphemous. Because after all, the powers that be are there because God has ordained it. We may not understand it. We may not fully be able to explain it. But if we're to be followers of Jesus Christ in this present world, one of the things believers are called to do is to be submitted to the governing authorities in such a way as that we prove that we are good citizens, we are commendable citizens, but we're also followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that however God may choose to use that in your life and in mine, that He make us such that we live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Shall we pray? Father, I trust that the word that we've considered together this morning helps us to navigate the days in which we live. our world is very complex and our political system from many vantage points is troubled if not in fact broken but yet O Lord you call us as your people to be in submission to the government the powers that be so may we O Lord in good conscience, before you uh, live as citizens of this country, abiding uh, by its laws and its rules and its ordinances, but also, Lord, being mindful of our first responsibility to you, to be fully surrendered to you, obedient to your word, and following Jesus Christ, at times even regardless of the consequence. So help us, Father, to model these truths so as to reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the reality of who you are. And Father, we'll give you thanks and praise for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as the
1: ushers come forward to receive our morning offering. Just a few prayer requests. Um, Sharon is still away. She'll be away next Sunday as well. Um, Just pray for her peace and comfort, as vacations are nice, but when you're in a place you spend so much time with your husband, they can also be difficult. Um, Pray that she is getting peace and joy and rest, and that she'll come back refreshed to us. Also remember Dane and Stan Myers as they recover. Um, I hear Dane may be coming home soon from um, his rehab. Um, But you can check with some of his family to make sure that that rumor is true. And also for those of you who don't watch the news, there was a pretty severe attack on Israel yesterday. And for the first time in 50 years, Israel has officially declared war. As we think about our culture and our times, you know, we're used to, at least I grew up with, unrest in the Middle East and wars and the rumors of wars. But this is a reminder that we need to keep our focus on Christ. We need to pray for Israel, because we do stand with Israel. It is still God's chosen place. And it is the the place that the end will occur. That has a lot of significance in our faith. So keep, keep that nation in your prayers and keep your eyes on what is happening and read it with a biblical perspective. And so, as we receive our offering this morning, there will be a video. God is overall that will start after the prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do recognize that you are overall, that you place governments over us to maintain order that you give us the command to be obedient to that government but be discerning of the rules and in this nation sometimes that is difficult we recognize your sovereignty and your provision in everything that happens and we know that it is all done to glorify you lord we pray that As we look around at what's going on, we see the world through your eyes and not through our own, so that we can have hope and not despair. We pray for those who are ill, Lord, that you would continue to place your healing hand upon them, give them strength, help them to recover. We pray also, Lord, that you will continue to draw each of us to you, help us to be reminded of your word. As we give our offering this morning, we pray that it is done out of gratitude and out of joy and that it is a thing of worship and not a thing of obligation. We pray that the funds will be used to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.